six six forty four. Wow, we are we're getting started a minute early, and so we're we're glad you're here today, and uh, want to have a word of prayer with you before we get started. I'm excited about these uh, two lessons. We're going to get them all all in. And Brother Terry asked me yesterday, "Are you sure you're going to be able to finish?" I said, "I'm sure. I will. I will be able to finish." I may be the only one here at 10 o'clock, but that's all right. I will, I will finish. No, I, th I think we can do it in about an hour. So um, this is the 22nd session. We're trying to do everything in 20, <clears throat> but um, it just takes a little, take, took me a little longer than what I realized. Trying to figure out the best time to teach this class again next year. I still haven't um, figured it out. My wife assures me she would come if it wasn't at 6.45 in the morning, so I'll... At 7 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, let me do it at 7. That, that, that changes everything. So, so all right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we will get into these two lessons this morning. Lord, we do love you, and we thank you for the rain. Thank you for your provision to us, uh, Lord, in every realm of our lives, Lord, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. Everything, God, is a gift from you, and we're very grateful, and we praise your name this morning. Lord, we ask you now to bless each person that is here today, bless these that are listening or watching online, that you would bless them. And I pray, God, you'd speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. You, the Holy Spirit, would speak to us through the Word of God that you wrote. I pray that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts so that we could absorb everything, God, you want us to know and to learn and then, Lord, I do pray that what we learn, we will be able to actuate it, put it into practice, God, and live uh, radiant lives, lives that, uh, Lord, I pray that when people see us, they will say what they said of the apostles in the book of Acts, that they could tell that we had been with Jesus. And, I, and that's my prayer, Lord, that we would just spend this time with you, and this would be uh, an exercise of our minds, but also it would change our hearts. Lord, I think of different people who have many needs today, surgeries or illnesses or, or many things going on in our church family. We pray for them, and we ask you now to bless us and, and be with us, and we're excited about you being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we got two lessons today. One of them, well, can I say it like this? One's on hell and the other one's on heaven, all right? So we're going to talk about the eternal destiny of everybody and uh, by the way, you only, get, you only get one or two choices. You either go choose Christ and go to heaven or reject Christ and go to hell. And the title of the first lesson is Judgment and Eternal Punishment. And the second one is called The New Heavens uh, and the New, uh, the New Earth. Uh, it's a sobering lesson. This first one is as it talks about judgment. Now, when I talk about judgment, I'm talking about everybody is going to be judged. And everybody will face judgment, face God in judgment. Now, unbelievers face Him in a totally different way than believers face Him, okay? That ought to give you encouragement and good news this morning. Uh, but everybody, the Bible says, all of us must give an account. All will stand before the judgment of, of Christ. Our author, Dr. Gruden, believes that all the judgments in the Bible refer to one judgment. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 the rewards judgment of the believers in 1 Corinthians 3, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat judgment. He says they are all one judgment. I disagree. I actually think those are three different judgments, but we'll get into that more in a minute. You know, I was thinking about this doctrine of, of judgment and eternal punishment in hell, and I was just thinking about how spiritually unsavory 
and unpalatable it is today, but not only today, but I think in every epoch of time, people have always had a little bit of a resistance or a little bit of tug in their spirit when you begin to talk about eternal destinies, especially uh, hell. Think about Charles Darwin, his famous quote that I read in a... Um, I'm trying to... Oh, yeah, Darwin on Trial by uh, Philip Johnson. He has a quote by a lady who wrote a biography on Charles Bar Darwin, and he said these words... Basically, he says, I hate this damnable doctrine of hell, and I know it cannot be true. And the reason hell is not true is because if it were true, then most of my family would be there, therefore it's not true. So much for logic and syllogism and so much for, you know, because I, I just resist it, therefore it must not be true. You know, two plus two has always been four. Did y'all know that? And 2 plus 2 will always be 4. You can't change the constants. You can't change the laws. And God has certain laws, and one of them is He's written the law of eternity upon our hearts, and we will spend eternity. The Word of God and the souls of men, we will last forever, okay? And we will either be in heaven with Him or be separated from Him in hell. So first is the final judgment. Let's talk about uh, one, the final judgment. The Bible indeed teaches there's a day of reckoning, a time of judgment, a time of accountability, if you will, for believers and unbelievers. The results of that judgment depend solely upon how you live your life here on this earth. The results of judgment depend solely upon how you and I live our lives here upon this earth. At the moment of death, it is too late to decide. At the moment of death, it is too late to say, well, oh, there you are, Jesus. Now I'd like to start to live for you. It, it's, it's too late. What we do here and now determines where we spend uh, the hereafter. Unbelievers' day of judgment is recorded in Revelation 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment, 11 through 15, and it is one ominous, powerful, daunting passage of Scripture. When you read that Revelation 20, and those books are opened, and your name is not there, and then you are thrown into the, to the lake of fire. I mean, it, it, if you believe it, and by the way, I must, I must say this, all of this comes from the Bible, so if you have a hard time with this, then you're going to have a hard time with the Bible, because the Bible clearly teaches you, you are going to be judged, and you are going to live forever, ever, either in heaven or hell. Judgment for believers is called the Bema judgment. Have you ever heard that word, Bema, B-E-M-A, Bema seat judgment? Uh, it's mentioned in Romans 14.10, we'll read that, and in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it speaks of this kind of judgment. It says, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all <clears throat> shall stand before the bema, in the Greek, judgment seat of Christ. And then the next text in Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, he's talking to the church, all right? He's talking to believers that we're going to give an account, we're going to receive rewards, or lack thereof, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Same Greek word, bema. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, Paul, in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, I was reading this again last night, he's teaching uh, to the Athenian philosophers, and I'm laughing because can you imagine Paul standing up before these Stoics and these Epicureans, these atheists, these... I mean, these people have no, no concept of a loving God who has sent his son. And Paul's up there preaching to them, and he says, oh, and by the way, he raised him from the dead, and he's going to judge all of us on, by the way, we treat his son. 
and it didn't go over very well there in, in Athens. And so, but yet he, he preached it. He says, we're all going to be judged by God. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible says it, and based on what, what we read in Scripture, God is, God is judged before, and it kind of points to this all-consuming, consummating judge, if you will. For example, he judged the unbelieving world where only eight people live. Somebody help me. That would be the Noah flood, the global flood. Eight people survived. And the Tower of Babel, you see him um, in judgment, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Romans chapter 1, you see God pronouncing judgment. And then in Isaiah, the whole chapters, 13 through 23, you see nations after nations being judged. And then let me read this one, 2 Peter 2, 9. The Bible has a lot to say, by the way, about accountability and about judgment. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for de- for the deli- and to deliver the godly out of should roll one more. That's it. To, to deliver the ungodly out of my Bible. Where's my Bible? I've got to get this right. Second Peter 2, 9. Somebody have it? I want to read it because I want to make sure I get this right. This is good. Open up the floodgates. Heard that, Terry, on the way this morning. We want to see you. Anybody got it? Christy Cravey, you got it, don't you? What does it say? Second Peter 2, 9. Second Peter 2.9. Hold on just a second. I've got my slides here. For the day of judgment. Okay, something's, something's funky up there, but this is right. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay, there it is. Good. Got it. Uh, it's different than that. All right. Uh, all right, let's, let's talk about this Matthew 25 judgment. This is 31 through 46. You remember this? And Jesus will say to the, uh, to the sheep, come and inherit, and to the goats, depart from me. Y'all remember that? You know, where does that fit in when you, when you talk about judgment? Grudem, he's very simplistic at this point. He says, don't worry about all that. That's all the same judgment. But I just disagree with that. I, I see this has got to be some kind of different entity of judgment than the Bema judgment the, the, of believers and the great white throne judgment of unbelievers. I believe the dispensationalist at this point, that this is the judgment after Jesus raptures his church and after the seven years of great tribulation, he comes back, and at that time is the sheep and the goat judgment. Dispensationalists put it like this. Of course, it's the sheep are those who believe in Jesus during the tribulation, and it's demonstrated by the way they treat uh, Israel. That's, that's, the way, that's their take on it. And, of course, the goats would be those who rejected Christ and those who would you know, reject uh, the Israelites as well. Okay, again, Matthew 25, 1 Corinthians 3, Revelation 20. Some see it, Grudem, i.e., sees it as one big judgment. I see it as three separate ones. So let's talk about characteristics of the final judgment, or judgments, really, both of them. A is Jesus Christ will be the judge. Wrap your mind around that for just a moment. Jesus, the Father, it says in, in John 5, the Father has granted this right to judge to the Son. Okay, this is John 5, 26 and 27. Let me read Acts 10, 42, and um, also 
2 Timothy 4, 1. Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God. Now, they antecede it, for he is Christ. It is Christ who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And then 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge? You with me? The Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing uh, and his kingdom. So, point number one, Jesus has been entrusted by the Father to execute this judgment. Judgments. B, unbelievers will be judged. Now, again, this is, Rome, this is Revelation 20, verse 12. Uh, it says that the great and the small will appear before him, the, the rich and the poor, the noted and the unnoted. Everybody will appear before uh, the judgment seat of Christ in Revelation 20, all unbelievers. Luke 12, 47, 48 speaks of, of degrees of judgment, that there will be... Um, you know, degrees, for example, Jesus said that the scribes will receive the greater uh, condemnation, all right? Just like there are degrees as rewards for believers, there's degrees of punishment, some believe, in, in judgment. But there will be no arguing with God on that day because he will bring everything, even the secret things, to light. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, And Jesus teaches this in Luke 12, 2 and 3, that the very words people have spoken... They will be judged. One of our church members was telling me the other day, just brokenhearted, tried to witness to a family member who's dying of brain cancer. And, uh, and one of our church members says, do you, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? He said, I'm not, I'm not really interested in all that. And she said, would you like to know what the Bible says about that? And he said, well, if you're talking about that there's a God, that he's going to judge me, then I don't want to hear about that because I haven't done anything wrong. And I thought, wow. What, a, what an amazing shock it's going to be when he stands before a holy, just, amazing God and God just shows him his life. And maybe God said, well, did you think that was maybe wrong? Did you think maybe that was wrong? And so every man will, will just be laid bare. Our hearts will be laid bare. All right, C is believers will be judged. Now, not in the sense of the way unbelievers will, but will be judged based on uh, lack of rewards or receiving of rewards. Romans 14, 10 through 12 teaches us this. And here's a good word, guys. We, we should not fear the judgment seat of Christ. I'm, I, it, it's, it's an accountability time, but it's, I believe it's going, to be, it's going to be a great time. John 5, 24. Again, I'm going to read it off of these because I can see this a little better. I've got to break down and get some glasses one day. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Now watch this. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. We're not going to be judged like unbelievers are judged. I mean, we're not. We, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we will very clearly spelled out in 1 Corinthians 3 and all those other texts that we read that we will be able to give uh, an account. Now, Grudem asked this really good question. I know some of you will be asking this question as well. Will the secret words, the deeds of, of believers, and all of our sins, will they be revealed in judgment? And the answer is no. And I love that. Because the Bible says in, in Micah 7, 19, that he has cast all our sins to the depths of the sea, and he remembers them no more in, in Hebrews 8, 12. And so that's an encouraging word. And I, you know, as the rewards are, are laid out, 
I don't know how all this is going to, to, to pan out. I just believe it because Scripture teaches it. But it's going to be a fascinating time when it's just you and the Lord God of the universe. You're standing before him, and we give an account and rewards, but somehow our sins are not remembered. Okay, what about degrees of reward in heaven? And, and Grudem says, absolutely. And he appeals to 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, and Luke 19, 11 through 27. Luke 19, by the way, is the parable of the pounds. Do you all remember that? The different people were, were given uh, more, like some received greater rewards than, than others. All right. He challenges the believer. He says, I think you really ought to understand better the degrees of reward because it will make you a better servant if, here on earth. And he really does. He, he makes an appeal to us as Christians to understand that we are going to give an account and there will be rewards in heaven and that ought to motivate us to want to live for Christ more here on this earth. He says it, it should make us want to do more for each other, encourage one another, and thus receive a, a greater uh, reward. D, is interesting, is angels will be judged. And uh, it says in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6 that some are incarceration awaiting their time of judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says we will judge angels. Now, ask me what I think that means, and I will tell you I have no idea what that means. And Grudem doesn't talk a whole lot about it because I don't think he really knows a whole lot about it either. He just says, I believe it means we're going to be in some way judging good angels. Now, again, I don't know, I don't know how all that's going to transpire, what that's going to look like. I don't think really anybody does, but somehow we're going to judge angels. Amazing. Believers will help in judgment is the last point under that. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, uh, Paul says he urges the Corinthians, he says, settle your legal disputes because one day uh, you as followers of Christ, you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge even angels. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus tells the 12 disciples that you will sit, remember this, you will sit on thrones and judge angels. Uh, Israel. And then those seated on thrones in Revelation 24 will assist Christ in uh, judgment. Interesting. But then Grudem does a good job. He points back to people being judges, if you will, in the scriptures to kind of point toward that future judgment. He says, for example, you have Moses and the elders. They rendered judgment in Israel. You have David. You have Solomon. You have civil authorities in Romans 13 and those who judge and govern the church. He said all of these are precursors or point to a future time of judgment where somehow we participate uh, in it. Well, why will there be a judgment? Have you ever asked this question? Why will there even be a judgment? Well, we're going to get into this a little bit more, but bottom line is God will reveal his holiness and his justice. And it just makes sense that things will be punished and things will be uh, rewarded. God will judge with no partiality. No one can accuse him of being unfair or unjust or showing partiality. No, it's, it's just accountability. It's, it's things that we live with in, on earth all the time. I mean, just think about if, if someone were to come in here and just started just tearing up our church, you know, and just ripping up the carpet and just throwing paint all over the, the building. You know, something to us would say, that's, that's what? That's wrong. And he needs to be held what? We know that. That, that. that just cries out from within us, and we can extrapolate that basic axiom of truth here in this temporal world 
then you can, you can easily posit onto the other world, and I think it's just going to be on steroids in the other world. I think it's just going to be maximized, this whole concept of accountability and rewards and, and punishment. Let me give you some applications of judgment, some moral applications of judgment. Number one, final judgment satisfies the need for justice in the world. And I like that one. Final judgment satisfies the need for justice. Some people say it's just not just, it's not fair. All these things happen and, and people just seem to get away with and the devil just seems to win. Not true. Okay? God is fair and just and one day he will render judgment against all ungodliness. And Colossians 3.25 says there is no partiality. Okay? No partiality. B, final judgment allows us to freely forgive or to forgive freely. Revenge is not ours. The Bible says in Romans 12, 19, remember this great verse here? Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, if the Lord's going to pay and repay and vindicate and take care of matters, then why do we think we need to take it upon ourselves to, to execute judgment or to... You know, you know what I'm saying? It frees us up. It frees us up just to forgive and to live and to let God take care of it. I think about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 23. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Okay? I also think about Jesus as he's you know, being arrested in, in the garden. And they're coming to him. And, they're, and If you haven't seen the Son of God move, you need to, you need to go see it. I know it has some historical and some, some biblical inaccuracies. I get that. There's a whole list of them but there's also a powerful presentation of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. I mean, he, he's there. He's living his life. He's dying on a cross. He's rising from the dead. And when they come to get him, he's like, why, why are you coming like this? He says, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels? My father would send 12 legions of angels right now. And I looked up the word legion. I forgot. I thought it was 1,000. It's not 1,000. It could be 6,000. And he said, I could call 12 legions of angels. But he didn't. He, he forgave. He entrusted... Uh, his life to the Father. Also in that movie, one of the things that, that just, really, just really grabbed me is, is the depiction of Jesus and his, um, his passion as he is going to the cross and as he is being mistreated. And I, there was a word that just kept pounding in my mind, and it's the word shame. I mean, just the Scripture says that he despised the shame. Okay, he just set it aside. He took it lightly. He just, he just pushed it aside so that he could be obedient. And, I, and I, I don't know, just something about that just really grabbed my heart, that Jesus stripped almost naked in front of his mom, in front of his disciples, in front of the throngs of the crowd. He has very little clothing on. His, his back has just been mutilated. He's been beaten. He's got this crown of thorns. And then they throw him on the ground, and, he, and, they, and they nail his hands and his feet. And I was just thinking about all the, all the shame and the pain and the agony and the humiliation of that. And yet he did not call those 12 legions of angels. And aren't you glad? Because had he said enough, we would be in big trouble. There would be no redemption. Without the shedding of his blood, there would be no redemption of our sins. And so if Jesus can do that, surely we, we should have the ability, or he gives us the ability to say, God, I'll let you vindicate me. God, I'll, you, you know everything. And I heard this one preacher say one time, he said, I never feel more ungodly as when I'm defending myself. Some, some quotes I wish I'd never heard. You, you know what I'm saying? I just, uh, 
I never feel more ungodly than when I'm, no, 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 you, yeah, this, no, no, I'm right, I'm right, this is what happened, you don't really know. And Brother Johnny, Johnny Hunt says, I just, I'm trying to get away from that. You know, I'm just trying to let God, God be the judge, God vindicate, okay? So final judgment allows us to freely forgive. Father, forgive them, help me. What did he say on the cross? For they know not what they do. We entrust it to him. C is final judgment provides motivation for righteous living. Isn't that the truth? And Grudem believes that all, including Christians and non-Christians, will appear before God in judgment. And um, believers, for rewards, that motivates us. It, it motivates us toward righteous living, toward evangelism, toward discipleship, toward walking with God, because we are going to stand uh, before him. And then it's interesting, he says, even unbelievers, the prospect of a final judgment restrains them from being even more evil. And I thought, I know people like that. I know a lot of good old boys, God-fearing people, and they'd be even more evil, even though they're not saved, they would be more evil were it not for the fact that they really do believe in a God and they believe in a, in a coming judgment. I thought that was an interesting insight from Grudem. And he says here, and I quote, an awareness of final judgment is both a comfort to believers and a warning to unbelievers not to continue in their evil way. Okay? So it provides motivation for righteous living. Next, final judgment provides motivation for evangelism. And I love this one because there are, Michael Green in his book Evangelism in the Early Church, he talks about motivation for evangelism. Why? Do we share the gospel? I was having breakfast with a, a, a Calvinist guy in our church recently, and he said, you know, he said, if for no other reason Jesus told me to witness, that's good enough reason for me, and I'm going to obey Jesus, and I'm going to tell everybody I know about Christ. And I said, I, I, good for you. I said, I, 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 amen. We should witness based on Jesus told us to, but also because of our love for lost people and our love for the Word of God and our, our obedience to Jesus and also because if we don't tell them and they don't know, then they go to hell and, and their blood could be on, on our hands. Think about it. So it provides motivation for, uh, for witnessing. Hebrews 9.27 says, After men die, uh, they will be judged. And if they don't know Christ, have not experienced forgiveness, then they will have to pay for their sins for all eternity and that's just, that's just too much for me. I have to share with people if they'll give me an opportunity. You know, I just took this trip to, um, where did I go? Amen. I was in Louisiana. And um, as I was flying out there, the, the lady sat next to me on the plane. And I kid you not, it, it, was, it was funny because I kept watching her. I said, will she ever wake up? I don't think, I think she's going to stay asleep on the plane. I think somebody's going to have to come get her and get her off the plane. I mean, she was, she was out. Ph.D. from Cambridge, I found out, University of Texas professor. And uh, I, I was able to share with her just a little bit because she woke up and she was, she was very nice and, and talked to her. But on the way back, I was talking to this young lady. She's 21 years of age. She's a student here at University of Texas. Doing, uh, she's going to study science and math. She's probably going to be a, a doctor, brilliant young girl. And, um, you know, guys, I was just so excited that she was awake. And I was so excited because I get to share the gospel with her. And you know, it's amazing how the devil, he, he tells us, you know, people don't want to hear. I'm going to tell you guys, people do want to hear. Pe people are interested. Some of you are looking at me like, well, you don't know my neighbors. You ain't talking to the people I know. And I started talking to her about Christ. And, um, and at the end, she said, well, my dad's an attorney here. He just moved from uh, Buffalo. 
And um, she said, I'll see you soon. And she said, not only will I see you, I'm going to get my whole family. We're going to come to your church. And I thought, you know, isn't that amazing? God, is, God just gives us these opportunities. And some of you are looking at me like, well, why would you interrupt her peaceful flight? Why would you talk to her? Why would you engage her about spiritual things? Because I believe she's going to hell. I just believe she's going to hell. She had no testimony. She had no knowledge, really, of who Jesus is. And so if I believe that, then how hypocritical of, uh, is it of me if I don't say something to her, if I don't at least try to attempt to share the gospel with her? Speaking of hell, let's, let's talk about it for I told you all this is some tough, tough lesson. The first one is the doctrine of hell. Jesus clearly believed in hell, okay? He taught a lot about it, like money. He talked probably the two subjects in the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God, money, and hell more than anything else, okay? Uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? Uh, here's my outline for the sermon I preach on this text, and you can preach it sometime if you want to. Hell is an actual place. It's an awful place. It's an always place. And praise God, it's an avoidable place. All right, those are the four A's of hell. Actual, awful, always, and uh, avoidable. Um, I, I preached this sermon in... Uh, First Baptist Church Eulis a few years ago, the pastor, he, I didn't know him, and, uh, and he didn't really know me, but he, he called and said, um, I want you to come and preach on, on the doctrine of hell. Will you do that? And I said, I'll be glad to come preach on hell. He calls me back. He said, oh, I need to ask you a question. And I was like, yes. He said, you do believe in hell, don't you? And I said, Yes, sir, I do. He goes, okay, good. I just had to make sure. And this is John Metter. I love him. Great pastor there in Euless. And, and it was funny because he didn't know. He, I might be one of, those, one of those guys that just come in and explain it away. And universalism, we're all going to heaven. You do believe in hell, don't you? I said, well, I do. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus speaks of hell, quote, as the everlasting fire prepared for the, anybody? The devil and his uh, angels. Mark 9, 43 and 44, he says twice that hell is unquenchable. And in verse 44, he says it is a place where their worm does not die. Unquenchable, everlasting, painful, torment, darkness, flames, I believe it all. Okay? You may disagree and say, I just believe it's in isolation. I just believe that it's, uh, it's where God's manifest presence is not, so therefore that's hell. I'm not going to argue with you. I just, I just believe it. I, just, I believe it's real. I believe it's way, way, way more real than what we can ever realize. And most of the population of the world is, is heading that way. John talks about hell in Revelation, does he not? He says, if you take the mark of the beast in the great tribulation, you will go to hell. And you will be tormented, according to Revelation 14, 10, and 11. Uh, we read that the unholy trinity of the Antichrist, the false prophet and the devil himself, are cast into the eternal lake of fire. Now, some theologians, uh, and it breaks my heart, some even good evangelical theologians that I respect come to find out that they say, well, I don't no longer believe in hell like I used to believe in. And John Stott is one of those guys. And I'm like, really? John Stott? He's one of my heroes. He goes, yeah, I just don't believe that anymore. He said, I believe more in annihilation, that God will just zap them and that'll that'll be it. Uh, for a time, they can suffer, but not for eternity. And, um, and, and their argument is that why would God allow temporal lives that sin on earth to suffer eternally 
in hell, you know, forever. It just seems to, it just seems to be unjust or unfair. But catch, catch this, guys. We may not understand everything, but God is never unfair. God is always just. And Grudem says, if there is a hell and there's an eternal heaven, that means that it's good because God is good. God is just. God is fair. And here's the thing I think that we don't, we don't have a, we have just a modicum of understanding is the holiness of God. If we really understood how holy and how majestic and amazing he is, we would get hell, I think, a little bit better. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he certainly believed in it. He preached a sermon uh, called Sinners. Anybody? In the hands of an angry God. When he preached this sermon in 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, during the First Great Awakening, people literally grabbed the pews in front of them because they felt like the, the hole was going to open up and they were going to be thrown down into it. I mean, they, they believed it. And uh, they also repented and, and, and were saved. Many of them were. Uh, by the way, Jonathan Edwards is an interesting read. I know some of y'all enjoy reading him. Tom? Tom enjoys Jonathan Edwards? Kyle back there enjoys Edwards. I enjoy reading Jonathan Edwards. It has to be real quiet when I'm reading Edwards because his sentences are like this long. Right? And you've got you to gotta follow him very, very carefully. Uh, when he was six years old, he, he was reading Latin. Okay? When he was 12, he entered Yale University and graduated when he was 17 as valedictorian. Okay? Perry Miller at Harvard said the greatest mind colonial America ever produced was not Washington or Adams or Jefferson. It was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He was the most prodigious intellect that America probably has ever produced. Hello? He believed in hell. And if as smart as Edwards, if he could believe in hell, you can believe in hell, okay? My, my point is, it's real, it's true, and, and Jesus taught it, the apostles taught it, and some of the giants of our faith taught it. In fact, he wrote another sermon. People don't know this sermon as well as they know the sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's called, quote, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. You ought to read that sometime. It's online. You can go and read it. It's called The Justice of God. So appeal, people appeal to the fact, oh, it's not fair of God. No, no, no. He says, God is just, God is right, God is fair to send people to hell forever, and here's why. And he gives this elaborate, detailed reasons why, and, I, and I've taken an excerpt out of his sermon just to give you a couple of thoughts to think about. He, he says, quote, The truth of this doctrine, okay, of hell, may appear by the joint consideration of two things, man's sinfulness and God's sovereignty. Though eternal damnation be... Be what you cannot bear, and how much soever your heart shrinks at the thought of it, yet God's justice may be glorious in it. Whew. Strong. That's strong for any time, especially at 7 o'clock in the morning. Amen. That is strong teaching. So, you got Paul in Acts 17, 31. He's preaching about hell. You've got John in Revelation. He's preaching about hell. You've got these apostles and these disciples, and these people are preaching about And I want to tell you something. It is just as offensive today as it was in the early church when they were preaching it. But because people don't want to be told I am accountable uh, to, a, to a holy, awesome, amazing God, and I'm, and I'm accountable to Him for the way uh, that I live, live my life. The question is not, where is the God of Paul? Where is the God of John? Where is the God of Jonathan Edwards? The question is, 
Where are the Pauls and the Johns and the Edwards of God? That's the question. And God's the same. It's just that there is a paucity. There is a, there is a lack of prophets and Bible teachers in our generation today who will stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. I, I guarantee you that most Southern Baptists will go and live their life and their pastor will never preach on hell. He will never, ever go there. Because how can you fit hell into the three ways to have a happy life? You know, you don't, you don't put hell in there because people start talking about, thinking about something, you know, that's not, that's not, not kind and not sweet. Uh, but most, most people will go through their lives and their pastor will never teach or preach on hell. And, um, and that's, I, think that's a, I think that's a travesty. You know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of something. I'm laughing a little bit because, you know, I give these three ways to this and that a rough time. I don't know if y'all noticed that or not, but I kick that dog every time I walk by it. You know, and guess what? I'm about to preach one of those sermons. I am. I'm going to preach on the three ways you can have a blessed life. And I am. I'm, I'm going to tell And it's the sermon I preach to my kids. Y'all know I've told you a little bit about it. There's a sermon I've preached for 24 years to my children. And I tell them, if you do these three things, you will be blessed. And they are. They are. All three of them are blessed. They love Jesus. They are on their way to successful lives. Two of them have more money in the bank than what you'd realize. I'm like, where did you get all that money? They're like, we did what you told us. And it is three ways that you can have. I'm not going to tell you all what it is. You're going to have to come. <laughs> you have to come Easter Sunday. Come Easter Sunday, and I'm going to preach this sermon. And um, I'm excited about it. Here's how Grudem closes out this chapter, and it's good. He said, I know this subject of hell and eternal punishment. I know this is hard, and it should be hard. For us to think of this doctrine today, it should cause us great distress and agony of spirit to think, to even think about eternal punishment. He says, but we need to acknowledge that eternal punishment is good and it is right because in God there is no unrighteousness at all. That's strong. He said hell is good, hell is right because God created it and because we can trust God, we may not understand it completely now, but we just trust God. And you never, ever can question the fairness and the justice of Almighty God. We as mere mortals, not no angel, no nothing, nobody, can look at him and say, "What? you can't do that. You just can't say, well, why did you do that? Because I tell you guys, the moment we die and we're in his presence, we're going to go, bad question, <laughs> bad question. I see you. you. You are amazing. Now, if that is true in the afterlife, it ought to help us here on this life. Instead of questioning God, why didn't you heal this person? Or why don't you save that person? Or why didn't you do this? Why did you do that? That ought to help us just to say, he's just, he's good, he's fair, he's amazing. And we can trust him. He's our heavenly father, even though we cannot always understand him. And that's okay. So that's hell. Let's talk about heaven. Amen. Let's, let's end on heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. This is lesson 20. And uh, we'll wrap this up. We're doing pretty good on time, actually. Doing better uh, than I thought. Uh, the word of God, the souls of men, will live indeed uh, forever. Uh, those made righteous by Jesus will abide with him in heaven, while those remaining in their sins, they will remain in eternity in hell. So let's talk about uh, the new heavens and the, and the new earth. Let's talk about this for just a minute. 
Scripture says that uh, there, there is an eternal home, there is a place that believers where we die and we go, and it's called heaven. Uh, it's, I like um, the way Grudem defines it. He said, heaven is the place, quote, where God most fully makes his presence to bless. You hear that? Remember, God is omnipresent. He's even in hell. Remember that? Psalm 139, if I make my bed in hell below, wow, you're there. If I go up here, you're there. If I go over there, you're, you're there. But, but Grudem says, yeah, but heaven is the place where God makes his manifest presence to bless the most, okay? And that's where God, that's where God is. Eternal life with God is made possible and available through Christ. And here are some scriptures that will encourage you in, in that line, okay? John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life that you may know that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right, next is 1 John 2, 25. And this is the promise that God has given us, eternal life. All right? And then one more, 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Don't you like the way the biblical writers equate eternal life with Jesus? Isn't that good? It's not just a place. Eternal life is a person. You know, it's, it's knowing Him and then, of course, spending eternity in heaven uh, with Him. Believers live with God, A. Believers live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, presently, those who know the Lord, uh, they are in heaven with Him uh, right now. I, I believe that. I don't believe in soul sleep like the Adventists do. I, I don't believe in that. I believe that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord if you are a believer. Uh, let, let, me, let me read some scriptures to you about this concept of a new heaven and a new earth. And I want to try to explain this in just a moment. But look at this. Isaiah 65 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Second Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise... We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, Revelation 21 is powerful. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had what? It passed away and there was no more sea. Peter says, in 2 Peter, he says, The, the heavens and the earth as we know it, they were dissolved. They were incinerated by heat. And that's why I can't understand why Grudem says, Not so fast. He says, I don't. I don't think that's what it means. I believe that the heavens and the earth are not going to be incinerated or dissolved or passed away. I think God's just going to remake them. And I'm like, I don't, get, I don't understand that. I mean, I agree with Grudem on probably most of what he says, but here I, I disagree with him because he's like, no, God will just recreate it. He will just kind of fix, fix it up a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more literal in the scriptures where I, I believe it's going to be passed away. Uh, right now, God lives in heaven. Amen. Isaiah 66, 1 said, heaven is, his, is his, where his throne is. Heaven is not a state of mind, ladies and gentlemen. Heaven is a place. And the Bible clearly affirms that heaven is a place. Let me read this to you. Uh, John 14, 2 and 3 says, And my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a what? place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
And now when he had spoken these things in Acts 1-9, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He was taken up. Where? He was taken up. Go to heaven. Go back to from whence uh, he came. And then there's, uh, I think there's, yeah, those, those two I wanted to, wanted to read to you. All right, heaven is real. It's where he is. It's where we will be one day, those of us uh, that know him. Now, most people outside evangelical Christianity, they deny the existence of a heaven as it is described in the Bible. And by the way, if you tamper with the Bible, then you can believe anything. If, If you don't believe the Bible, then you can believe what you want about life, what you want to believe about sexuality, about marriage, what you want to believe about capital punishment, what you want to believe about hell. Well, you, you can believe anything you want to believe as long as you remove the Bible out of the, out of the equation. And that's what most of the people in our country have done. We have become so biblically illiterate that we'll believe anything, and when somebody shows us what the Bible says, it, it's like an alien. They're like, where did you see that? Where did you hear that? Well, that's what the, that's what the Scripture says. And the Scripture is very clear about what heaven looks like and what, what it doesn't. And the popular sentiment in our culture is you only go around once, so live it up. Amen? That's what they say. You only go around once. In other words, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no judgment. There is no afterlife. There is no accountability. So live life like you want it. You only go around once. And uh, such a travesty to, to hear that sentiment so taught. Um, talking about heaven, I, I, I got out the, uh, the, the, the booklet, and uh, this is the comparative chart. I think, we, I think we gave this, didn't we, Kathy? I think we gave everybody a copy of this. If you weren't here last semester when we gave everybody one, you'll have to pay $5. And so, I'm um, just kidding, you, you can have one too. And, and Kathy helped me. She went through and she typed up what each one of these, or what many of these say about hell and heaven. And it's very fascinating. For example, evangelical Christians believe there's a heaven, there's a hell. Those that know Jesus, that's where you go. Those that don't know Jesus, that you go to the other place, all right? And there are many scriptures to support that. Seventh-day Adventists say when you die, you go to sleep. You take a long nap, a very, very long nap. And eventually you'll be raised up, but right after you die on this earth, you take a long nap, and if you don't know Jesus, then you'll eventually be annihilated. That's what Seventh-day Adventists teach. Jehovah Witnesses, oh my word what they teach. They teach that the 144,000 go to heaven, and they rule as spirits with Christ. But other worthy Jehovah Witnesses live forever in paradise on earth. You've got heaven, you've got some people live on earth, and then you've got um, Jehovah Witnesses believe hell is the grave, hell is the final destiny. Uh, it's not everlasting. It's not endless torment. The Mormons, oh wow, they believe there are three heavens. You've got the celestial, and that's with God and the faithful LDS. You've got the terrestrial, which is for righteous non-LDS. I guess that would be us. And then you've got the telestial, which is the unrepentant, the wicked. And then finally you've got hell. So you've got four afterlives. You've got four eternal destinations, and hell is just for Satan and the really bad people. Okay? Islam. Islam said... You better be a Muslim or you're going to die and go to hell. That's what, that's what Muslims teach. And paradise in heaven is for the faithful Muslims. And, uh, you know, they've got their rewards. They're virgins. They've got all these things that they believe are waiting for them 
uh, in heaven. Non-believers, unfaithful Muslims, and those who apostatize, they go to hell. Hinduism, you're re reincarnated, you come back either as an animal or as another human. The earth is, is reborn, and so it's this cyclical, you know, there's two views. It, it is cyclical, repet repetitive, over and over, or it's linear. Linear means there's a beginning and there's a what? There's an end to it. But if you're in Buddhism or, or Hinduism, it's like this. It's just on and on and on. When you die, come back as an animal and go on. And on. When you die, come back as somebody else and go on and on and on. Amazing. And that's uh, Hinduism. Um, Buddhism says reincarnation this is confusing to me, and it's like a flame that's passed on, and then you overcome nirvana, and then if you come out of that, you get into a pure land, kind of like a paradise. It's confusing. I really don't understand it. Uh, humanism says it's easy. There is no soul. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There's no resurrection. It's, this is it. That's the secular humanist. This is it. This is all there. This is all there is. Okay? So that's just some of, the, some of the beliefs about heaven and hell. I don't know about y'all, but I'll take the Bible. I, the Bible just makes a whole lot uh, more sense uh, to me. All right, so Gruden believes that the earth will not be totally dissolved, but will one day be renewed. And again, I, I said I disagree with him at this point, but he, like every time else I disagree with him, I have to scratch my head and go, man, that guy's smart. He just presents really good arguments for what, for what he believes. And that's another reason why I really appreciate him is because he is not wimpy. He will tell you, listen, you may disagree with me, but this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And I, and I respect that. I had professors in school that they would tell what everybody believed. They didn't have the guts to say what they believed. Uh, and so they would just kind of leave it, leave it out there. And so, but Grudem doesn't do that. He, he really tells you what he believes and why. Okay, listen, this is going to be fun. I was ready to share this with you. In the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we're talking after the tribulation, after the millennial reign of Christ. I mean, this old heaven and earth that's passed away. And Revelation 21, 22 talks about it, how we have the new heavens and new earth and the, and the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's what I'm talking about now, okay? In our resurrected bodies, we will dwell with God forever and live with all the redeemed from from all time. Our bodies will never disease, nor will they grow old. We will serve God forever and do His pleasure, do His bidding. What that looks like, I don't know. Is that when we start judging some of the angels? I don't know. Is that when God sends us on some mission to do something? I, I don't know. And, and people ask me a lot of questions about heaven. I look at them like, I don't know. I just, it's all speculation. I can tell you what the scripture says, but beyond that, I can just speculate. And I was speculating with my mom one time. My mom was a great theologian. When she was, she was in her right mind, uh, of course, she has Alzheimer's now, but she was a very good Bible student theologian. I remember asking her, I, was, I wanted to argue with her, what about heaven? What are we going to do? She said, listen to me. <laughs> she said, Jesus is going to be there. Don't worry about it. He'll be there. That's heaven. He's heaven. So just enjoy it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know? And he, she's right. I mean, I don't, I don't know what all is going to be happening in heaven, but it's going to be awesome because Jesus uh, is there. Now, Grudem, he, he helps when he talks about um, the... the uh, well, let, let me just give you this quote. He says, there's a river of life. 
there's a tree of life, uh, there's a marriage supper of the Lamb, all of these things talking about eternity. He said, are these things symbolic or are these things real? Is there really a marriage supper of the Lamb? Will we really eat and drink? Is there really a river of life? Is there really a tree that bears its fruit in each season? Well, this is what Grudem says. He says, quote, well, are symbolic banquets, symbolic wine, symbolic rivers and trees somehow superior to real banquets and real wine and real rivers and trees in God's eternal plan? And so his argument is, no, it's, it's going to be real. He says, um, the, the, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, what Scripture says, it's like a rare jewel. It's streets of pure gold. The kings bring their glory to the Lamb. And there is this tree that produces its leaf every month. And so Grudem says, based on that, there is a, still a linear dimension even in eternity, meaning that there's still time and sequence of events even in eternity, even though God's over time and, and God's beyond time. But Grudem is arguing that heaven is just not some wishy-washy, we don't have any understanding. No, he says it's linear, it's clear, and things happen uh, in succession. It's just that it goes on forever and ever. Uh, we will serve God. I know that much. Uh, we will grow in our knowledge of God. I really believe that. That's one of the things Grudem helped me in, in, in this study is that I will continue to learn things about God forever. Um, I, I know what Scripture says, that we will, we will see Him, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. But this is where the Mormons get it wrong. They say it's more than you will be like Him. You will be Him. You will actually take on God-like status. You will be just like God. You say, Mormons don't teach that. Yes, they do. Fifth LDS president, Lorenzo Snow, he's the one that came up with this quote. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. So God the Father was a human being just like you and me, okay, at one time. And then, eventually, those who go to heaven will be God, be like him. According to LDS theology, eternal life is synonymous with exaltation and godhood. We will become uh, gods. That's what, uh, that's what their doctrine teaches. Uh, Grudem, he's interesting here. He says, I disagree with the hymn, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time will be no more. He said, I disagree with that. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, he said, we'll still have time. <laughs> he said, because there will still be succession, events in a linear fashion, in a linear uh, order. Um, and he gives some good arguments for it. For he says, the worship in heaven is seen as a sequence of events, such as the falling down, the casting of the crowns, the kings of the earth bring their glory, the tree of life yields its fruit in each month. You see his argument? That there is order, that there is, and he calls it time, and presents a pretty good argument for it. God will still be God, and though we will have resurrection bodies, we will dwell with him in heaven, and we will be with him. Hallelujah. Okay, how about storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth? I think this is our last main point. So let me, let me share this with you. Oh, I've got two more points. Uh, we only live here on earth temporarily, but when we, with God in heaven, it will be forever. And so if that is true, how much more time should we be spending on earth storing up treasures for things that will last forever instead of so concerned about storing up treasures where Jesus said moth and rust and thieves break in and steal? Y'all get that? One is forever, 
One is for eternity, and the other one is for time and for uh, the temporary. And Peter says all these things are going to be dissolved, so how shall we live? We should live in lives of holiness and godliness in an anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. All right, next point is characteristics of the new heaven and new earth. And, and, and again, you can read Revelation 21, 22. And like I said, in the year 2020, when I get there in Revelation 21, 22, I'm going to, I'm going to teach on this. I'm going to go verse by verse. I'm going to go line by line and share with you these dimensions of the new heaven and new earth. But let me just give you a brief summary right here. Our eternal abode will be a place of beauty, joy, peace, and eternal bliss. Uh, Revelation 21, 3, and 4 say this. I love these verses. They're great verses. Ross, these are great verses used when we preach about heaven, preach funerals. He said, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away, come on now, church, every tear from their eyes. And aren't you glad there are some things that are not in heaven? I ought to preach a sermon one day, things that are not in heaven. There are no more, there's no more death. Hallelujah, there are no more funerals. Amen? There's no more Alzheimer's. There's no more cancer. There's no more horrible car accidents and tornadoes and no hurricanes. There's no death. There's no sorrow. And John says, there's not even any crying in heaven. There shall be no more pain. In case I missed one, or in case John misses one, he says, there's just no pain, all-inclusive. For the former things have passed away. Wow. The new Jerusalem, this new place, eternity, that we're going to experience, Revelation 21, 2 and 11, describe it as a bride who is adorned for her husband with such radiance like a rare jewel. This this new place, this dimension, and some people a lot smarter than me have done the math on this, and they say the length, the width, the height, they're all 1,400 miles. It's kind of a cube-shaped. It's in there. You check it out, Revelation 22. It's, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Our minds can't really understand the, the enormity of it, the immensity of it, but it's going to be pure joy, blessings, bliss, ecstasy, living in the presence of God. And the last thing I want to say, and, and, and I want you all to hear my heart on this. We get a foretaste, a glimpse of this on earth on certain occasions. And you know what I think those occasions are? I think one of them is when we lead somebody to Jesus. I think we get a glimpse of the ecstasy and the joy that will be exponentially multiplied in heaven. When that, when that, 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 you remember what the Bible says? I think the Bible only says one time the angel's having a party. They're rejoicing over what? One sinner who repents. And then the other glimpse, I think, is when we are with the Lord in public worship, in, in, the, in the body of Christ, we're corporately worshiping God, I think we get a little foretaste of glory divine that, that is ours in the afterlife. Well, I want to thank you all for staying with us for 22 weeks. Um, what, uh, I'm going to make a couple of statements. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored to have taught this class and to, and to walk through this journey with you. I really thank uh, our comrades, Brother Terry, thank you for helping. Corey, thank you for helping. Miss Kathy and Rick, y'all have been here the whole time. And bless y'all. I appreciate, appreciate all y'all's help with this. And um, 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that big book, uh, Miss Vivian, that you have sitting right beside you. I've read about two-thirds of Grudem's book, and now for my pleasure reading, I'm going to read the rest of it, and I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to finishing out the, the book, and uh, hopefully may even write a book myself on theology one day. We'll see if that, if that comes about. Uh, but my goal in teaching this class, uh, it, it's, it's part of our Radiant Church uh, motif. I really believe that we ought to worship God with everything that we are and all that we are, that we ought to study His Word, and that we uh, should go and share our faith uh, with others. And uh, so that's it. Any comments or questions? You got a full minute before you rush out into the into the rain. And uh, but let me let me entertain. If you got a quick question, and then um, then we'll dismiss you, and then then we I can hang around and talk to you for just a little bit. Yes, yes, sir. His question is, what, what are my thoughts on uh, near-death experiences? I think some of them are real, and I think some of them are demonic. I really do. Those who are non-believers, who are, have no desire for Christ and heaven, and they have these near-death experiences where they go to heaven and everybody's in heaven, I just don't believe that. I don't. Now, I'm not discounting some who, who really have what I would classify more of a genuine uh, experience that is in, more in relation to Scripture. Here, here's a good litmus test. If people tell us things that happen in this life or the next life that don't line up with Scripture, it's not right. And that, that really is our litmus test. If, if people have no belief in Jesus, no desire to serve Him, and they die in this experience and they go to heaven, you shouldn't go, wow, you know, scratch your head. And, you know, no, they had, a, they, had a, they had a deceptive, you know, near-death experience. Now, about this little boy that supposedly died and went to heaven, I'm, I'm interested in that. Heaven is for real. Um, that's fascinating to me, and I'm, I, I should have already read the book. I haven't read it, but I will go see the go see the movie, and uh, that'll be interesting. I wanna I wanna I wanna explore that uh, some more. All right, thank you. Good question. I'm sure you got some other good questions. Yes, sir. Amen. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I'm glad to. Glad to do it, and I really believe, as I was saying Sunday, uh, and I want to say this again because I believe the Lord gave me, uh, he gave me a word Sunday that I had not planned on sharing. That happens to me a, a lot, by the way. I have my manuscript, but sometimes God speaks outside the manuscript, you know, and he has a word for you. And, and I really believe that God has put this so hard on my heart to do all this studying because many of our people are going to do this. They're going to take this knowledge and maybe even take these very outlines and they're going to use them. You're going to use them in Bible studies. You're going to use them on the mission field. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with using other people's material. I, I use people's material all the time. I just try to give uh, credit for it. When I was in India teaching, uh, I, I taught them the uh, eight commands of Christ which is the reproducing discipleship. It's what you do to go back and, and follow up with people when they accept Christ, what Fred and Melissa are teaching. And I got through, I didn't get through all of them. I got so excited. I got through four, I think, about a half a day of teaching and training. That's all the time we had. And, uh, you know, I have no, no problem doing that or using other people's stuff. And I hope that some of this is, is, um, is helpful to you as well. Oh, good. I tell you, have y'all had the stomach bug yet? You don't want it. 
I just want to promise you, make you, make you a promise. I, that thing has hit me, and it, I'm, I'm over it, but I'm not over it yet. I'm still kind of weak from it. You know something's not right when I'm not hungry, and I don't want to work out. I mean, something is wrong in the atmosphere when those two things are happening. So I appreciate y'all's prayers for me. I get well, I get completely strong. I can preach on Sunday. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you, God, for the word of God that... Um, mm, Lord, is so precious. It is our joy to study your word, to study you, to learn more about you, so that not that just our minds would be full, Lord, but that our hearts would be full, and we would tell, we would go and tell the good news of the gospel, and we'd be able to give a defense for the things that are dear and important to us with meekness and fear. I thank you, Lord, for these theologians out in this room today. Thank you, God, for the knowledge that you've given them. Thank you, Lord, that... It's going to amaze them profoundly, <laughs> things that they will remember at the appointed time. I can't wait to hear stories, Lord, of when the Holy Spirit, you bring to their remembrance because they were so disciplined, so diligent, that, Lord, you'll bring things to mind and, and they will be able to use it with, with people they talk to, people they witness to, people they encourage. So thank you, Lord, for their, for their diligence and their discipline. I do pray, God, that you would bless us as we go, give us strength uh, physically, help us to be good witnesses for you throughout this day. And I pray for the Lord's Day for Sunday. May it be a grand day for us in Great Hills. May we uh, experience a little bit of what we experienced this past Sunday, God. You visiting us and you showing up in power and changing people's lives. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Dismissed.